Hey, I'm Julia, a Doctor Who enthusiast. I've been wanting to get into classic Doctor Who, but there's a lot. Luckily, I have my friend Jonah. Hello, that's me. A legit Brit and Doctor Who uber nerd. That's not how you bitched it. To guide me through the basics of understanding classic Who. So, Jonah, what are we watching this time? This episode, The Edge of Destruction. That's a very dramatic. It's the most sort of. I mean, they're all sort of dramatic titles, but it's just. This one is incredibly dramatic, and then the second one, "The Brink of Disaster." Yeah, it's It's really like even more, even more on the like we were on the edge before, but now we're like we're teetering on the edge of yeah, yeah, toppling Um, over. So this this episode is only two parts. It's the easiest breeziest one we've had so far Mm -hmm. um so how this one came about is there was a lot of going back and forward between the original commissioning for a bunch of episodes of doctor who originally they were only commissioned for the first four episodes that they did and then halfway through making them they were commissioned for a full for a 13 episode run so they had the budget up until this Mm -hmm. so the these two episodes sort of bridged the gap up until that first 13 episodes right yeah then once they started rolling them out they got commissioned for the whole series which was great um but these two these two are like the the filler episodes that you find they're the filler episodes and they're also um because the next script after this one marco polo is the big um amazing epic across mm-hmm. 13th century china with amazing costumes and sets and the episode just before this was the daleks which was a big high concept sci-fi with lots of costume sets and props this episode is set completely within the tardis with just our main forecast mm-hmm. so it's incredibly cheap to make um but i mean i really like that it's completely in the tardis yeah you don't you don't get that many episodes like that it's a bottle episode which is what mm-hmm. we i don't know when the term bottle episode came about um probably when when this show came out well, exactly they, they made that term for yes, this, these two was, episodes i think that yeah. was actually um one of the uh potential titles was ship in a bottle oh yeah no it wasn't that's an ep- <laughs> that's actually um a big finish episode which is a bottle episode it's called ship in a bottle um okay but uh but yeah episode was written by uh david whittaker who is the script editor of the series mm-hmm. at the time um so he was uh, the, the story is that he wrote it in like two two days he sort of sort of flung it together at the last minute and some people would argue it, it does read like that um <laughs> I I really enjoyed this two part. Um, yeah, I mean it's fun even if it was like quick. But I mean people do play festivals like that. Exactly. So that doesn't make it any less cool. Yeah. Well, this one as well to me it feels very much like obviously we've mentioned before that the style of filming these is very akin to theater the way they used to mm-hmm. make these. But they, this this script feels like it's really leaning into the theatre side of it. And that, to me, reads like David Whittaker going back to something he's comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's said to be inspired by, like, R.L. James and, um, you know, um, Shirley Jackson. It's sort of a... It's a horror. It's a sort of, you know, it locked is. room mystery horror. It, it is. It had, like, that vibe at one point. And in one of my notes, I was like, what kind of horror episode is this? Because, like, they just kept throwing in, like, mildly scary elements. And I'm watching this in the morning with coffee. I'm like, I did not sign up for a horror show. Yeah. But it was fun. Yeah. It wasn't actually that scary. No, but also in terms of the lighting and the staging of it, it's very dramatic. And also the, mm-hmm. the idea of the TARDIS being drained of power and the lights going dim. The TARDIS was being haunted the yeah. whole time. Yeah. I think as an idea for an episode, the, the, tar- the spaceship gets haunted or, you know, something possesses the ship and the crew is a really, you know, a really good idea. You should do it. Yeah. Well, well, with some of the conversations we've had before about this... I mentioned that I I wonder how much of this episode is I have not no proof of this at all, but it wouldn't surprise me if this episode inspired Midnight, the Rusty Davis bottle episode, where mm-hmm. they're trapped on a in a you know the coach load of people and something is possessing them because that feels like at some point at one point in the story mm-hmm. it feels like that's the direction this is going. Right. Um so I wonder if little Russell C. Davis was watching it and thought, that would be a good idea for an episode. I apologise yeah, to all my Welsh friends. Maybe. Um, <laughs> you should tweet him and find out. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, 
Right. Should we should we dive into this? Because this I is think so. this is a nice little, nice little snack of a story and we can we can <laughs> it's gonna be an absolute doddle to edit. I'm really looking forward to it. Part one The Edge of Destruction. Taking off from Skaro, the planet of the Daleks, there is the sound of an almighty crash, a small explosion from the console, and the crew are flung to the ground as the craft shakes in the turbulence. A moment later, there is quiet again. But Susan, Ian, and the Doctor lay about the console room, unconscious. Barbara enters from the door off the control room. She's dazed and confused and looks round at her fellow travellers. Okay, have you seen Dazed and Confused? I haven't, but I'm aware of it enough that having written, I wrote that in my script for me and yeah. totally should have should have caught that. It should have. Um, All right. Susan is the first to wake, though she seems groggy and bewildered, like she can't quite remember who Barbara is. Barbara herself is also confused as to where she is, not recognising the TARDIS. Susan does recognise her grandfather, who's laying unconscious on the floor, likely sustained in the crash. Okay, maybe it was, but maybe it's also um, mind control. Yes. Or there's, or there's something yeah. in her brain. Yeah. So you, you're you're big into the, the brain slug theory at this point. Is that, is oh, that yeah. correct? Oh yeah, 100%. I am 100% into something is being harboured in her brain. Did you ever read the Animorph books? When you, uh... I read the first one. Okay, actually, a couple of years ago. Ah, because they the they're called the Yerks, the Yerks. I, I don't actually I know think, how to pronounce it because I've only seen it written on the page. They're slugs that go in the brain, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was obsessed with those books. I found a Dropbox of all of the books, oh, and wow. I ended up like downloading it, and then only read the first one. But I think I still have access to this. this well, Dropbox. it's one of those things that I'm worried that if I read it now, it would in my mind, it's incredible, mm-hmm. and I'm slightly worried. I don't know if it'll live up to it or not. I don't know. Maybe well, I'm wrong. I think it probably would. Um, considering I read the the first one as an adult. Yeah. Only a couple of years ago. Okay. No, it, it had to have been less than a year ago because I'm pretty sure I read the first one because you were talking about Animorphs. Ah. Um, and it, I mean, it's a kid's book, but it wasn't like bad. Yeah. Yeah. But also there's a kid who turns into a, um, a red kite. Is it red kite or is it Kestrel? Anyway, because I was also obsessed with Birds of Prey as a child. That checks out. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So you, yeah, okay. So Susan, Susan gets up. She's got a pain in the back of her head, uh-huh, and she's being controlled by something. That's what you think. And I think she's being controlled by something. That's what I think. At this moment, Ian wakes up. He too is confused, thinking that he's still at Coal Hill School. The doctor has a cut on his head, and Susan leaves looking for bandages. But as Ian and Barbara check him for further injury, the old man mutters to himself in his sleep, "I can't take you back, Susan. I can't." Still bewildered, Barbara looks around the ship. She's starting to remember something, a word associated with this place, TARDIS. Susan returns with the bandages, but is shocked, seeing something the others hadn't spotted yet. The TARDIS doors are open. Outside is nothing but a white void. Ian stands and attempts to approach the doors. But as he gets close, they automatically were closed, only to open once again the moment he steps back. I really laughed here, just remembering our conversation about how the doors were really hard to manipulate. Yeah. <laughs> just like these poor people that have to open and close them. Yeah, so it's every time Ian moves towards the doors, they go and shut, mm-hmm. and every time he moves back, they open again. Like you're right, there's no mechanics. It's just two blokes. No, it's just two people trying to sync up the movement to right. open these doors. This, this, I bet this episode really got them in sync with yeah. each other. In yeah, how they were to doing maneuver. those mirror exercises that you do uh-huh. in drama classes. Yeah. yeah. Oh god, I haven't done one of those in a very long time. It's such a writery thing to do. Like, well, let's do something cheap and low budget. We'll just set it all in the TARDIS with all the TARDIS props. It's like that thing, it, uh, the kind of the joke of comic book artists being like, oh, in comic books, you can have an unlimited budget because it's whatever, whatever mm-hmm. the artist can draw. I can have a thousand spaceships. And then the artist is like, you want that a thousand, a thousand like, Oh, oh, that's how many you think. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's do it. Awesome. 
The pain in Susan's neck is getting worse, so Ian leads her through to the sleeping quarters. Yeah, those beds did not look very comfortable. They're like weird S shapes. Yeah. They're like therapist chairs. So we get to see um, a lot more of the TARDIS in this episode. We did see a little bit of the sort of living quarters in the previous episode, but a whole extra room set is built for this episode, mm-hmm. um, which has, so you're going through the double doors at the side and it's like a little sitting room. And then behind that is sort of sleeping quarters. And you're right. Yeah. So there's these beds that kind of come out of the wall and they're like semi sofa sort of therapist chair S. Yeah. Like, yeah. how are you supposed to get comfortable on that? Like... But yeah. I don't know. You can't sleep on your side on a chair like that. Well, I, I think I've told you the story before, but for pers- I've personal experience I've had of uh, staying at our mutual friend's house who have a similar shaped sort of chair. Mm-hmm. Um, their, their lovely sofa was already taken <laughs> by someone. So I was given this chair to sleep on and after about two seconds of sitting in it, <laughs> knew I was it was not going to work. So I just tore no. all the pillows off and just lay on, lay on the, the, built a nest on the floor. So... Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I, hunt, I can, from personal experience, you would not sleep in these. I mean, I'm fairly sure my mom has a chair like that at her house too. And it's just like, it's really, really hard to get comfortable on. Like I can pull my, my knees up to my chest and sit like that, but it's not like I can recline as yeah. any further than what it already is. And I can't lay on my side. And I, I mean, that just bothers me because I'm a side sleeper. <laughs> I think I think they they look futuristic because they're curved. I think that's the idea. But, but they're yeah. so impractical. But no, I really I really love that we get to see more of the TARDIS in this episode. I I love seeing um, the kind of domestic side of being in the TARDIS, or just mm-hmm. in you know in in you know sci-fi and fantasy in general. I love seeing because obviously they the thing these shows always skip out. You know everything's always action and disaster. You always skip over the kind of like where everyone eats and stuff and mm-hmm. it's you have to kind of imagine that's going on in the background but every so often it's nice to see some of the downtime area especially in the TARDIS because we we very rarely it's get really to see the rest of it yeah. yeah so I really like this episode mainly it's probably for that is that we get to see the living a little bit of the living quarters yeah I mean there's a thing um I don't know how old like this genre is but it's like a newer at least there's more books coming out where it's more of a cozy fantasy sort of a thing. Okay. So like the book Legends and Lattes um, <laughs> is is literally just like this former barbarian decided yeah. to quit and open a coffee shop. Oh, and wow. it's just like that sort of thing where it's it's just it's a coffee shop. I haven't actually read it, but yeah. um, there's just there's a lot of books that are coming out now that are very more domestic than they are. A fantasy adventure but they're still in a fantasy universe which is really cool what is it what does it say that we've reached a point where our fantasy is is normality rather than like dramatic stuff happening all the time you know well <laughs> i mean we had a lot of dramatic unprecedented yeah. times so yeah uh, our fiction is now just like people chilling <laughs> and having right? people having stable jobs and, and friendships and oh my gosh the <laughs> hobbit lifestyle yeah people want it well actually, you know, if you think about it that the idea of the hobbits comes out of after the you know the the war so mm-hmm. that kind of fant- the fantasy of living in the shire is probably what people wanted at that time i would love to live in the shire yeah. though it would I, be so know, fun. Yeah, just, they don't wear shoes, do they? They just have no, like really big hairy feet. Well, the soles of their feet are, uh, I think, are like callous and hard, like mm-hmm. shoe leather, I think, mm-hmm. and they're, they're furry feet as well. So because they, they, have they don't wear shoes. shoes. Like yeah. that's why their feet are calloused is because yes. they don't wear shoes. Yeah. Um, Anywho, this, 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 this <laughs> is um, for the Tolkien spinoff we'll do after this. Um, oh, I didn't sign up for that did you not oh well i mean we have it in right we have it in here now so people will expect it um where in the script am i uh <laughs> by now the doctor has begun to stir the cut on his head has been bandaged but there's something else though barbara can see no visible injury a pain in the back of his neck i bet there's something in his brain yeah this is, i mean the evidence is stacking up for that brain bit, <laughs> the brain slope it theory. really is this horror show in the sleeping quarters having decanted susan into one of the beds ian heads over to the food machine in the living quarters like the doors 
The machine seems to be malfunctioning. It says that it's out of water, but dispenses some when Ian presses the button. That was weird to me. I, that's literally all I wrote in my notes was, yeah. that's weird. <laughs> and then moved on. The idea throughout this episode is that everything in the TARDIS is sort of playing up. And yeah, we, we, when we get to the sort of um, solution at the end, I don't think mm-hmm. all the pieces quite line up. No, they um, don't. But in terms of setting an atmosphere, it's interesting. I think it all, you know, all basically all the everything's something going on, and we're not sure what's happening. Ghosts. I bet it's ghosts. Yeah. Aliens. Ghost in the machine. Something. Something's living in the machine too. Yeah. Whatever is in their brains is also in the machine. This, the, yeah, this is going to be in the new series. It turns out that all this time, the TARDIS is run by a, ti- a team of like tiny aliens um, <laughs> who are running around like in the console, sort of powering everything. Oh, like that little squirrel that you sent me the other day. Oh yeah. They, I, I think there might be like some catnip or, or something that's like because he, he looked like he was on drugs. That squirrel. He was yeah, doing. He was- parkour like doing flips yeah like proper like good form as well like Mm -hmm. like doing handless cartwheels and anyway yeah no practicing for the squirrel olympics yeah i'll have to if i keep that video we can put it up on the socials when if this episode (laughs) comes out (laughs) it'd just be really random like lots of doctor who content and then just a video of a squirrel squirrel parkour 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 He turns back to the sleeping quarters to find Susan standing, waiting for him. She looks wild and clutches a long pair of scissors as a weapon. Who are you? She asks. When Ian tries to get close, she lashes out at him with the scissors. Then, seemingly overpowered by the pain in her neck again, she descends on the bed, stabbing at it multiple times with the scissors before falling unconscious. It could just be actually that the bed's just really uncomfortable and she's cross with it. Maybe yeah, that's what the pain in the neck is. The pain in the well, neck is... I just really want to know how she found the scissors because it's not like there's any cubbies around. Yeah. So at this point, I've I've, I've shown you my my model and I've been building of mm-hmm. the inside of the TARDIS because that's yep. actually one of the things I wanted to add is like little cup. So I, I found this pre-existing model of the um, William Hartnell's TARDIS console and I've been going through adding this... So specifically whilst we've been um building up to this episode is um building the little side room off the TARDIS mm-hmm. um and one of the things I was going to add is a little cubby by all the sleeping beds to people to put stuff in um but the, yeah so this this image of Susan with the pair of scissors is I think the sort of the well there's there's two sort of iconic images from this serial um one we'll get to later but this this image of her th- of her threatening Ian with the scissors mm-hmm. um I think is quite iconic, and also, you know, Caroline Ford in the in this two parter as well. She's kind of playing it sort of this sort of what like kind of possessed sort of. She plays it like a haunted person. Yeah, which is a hundred percent you know to to the brief. I think um, there. So I think they got some grief um, for this bit with the scissors. Actually, um, there were letters of complaint written to the BBC um, mm. about it. Um, I could see that, but even if they put like a little note before or or like just flashed on the bottom of the screen, kids don't try this yeah, at home. Don't I, they probably yeah. would have been fine? <laughs> yeah, well, it's this difference if it's ray guns because kids don't have ray guns in the house, but with scissors, mm-hmm. and it is violent when she stabs the you know the 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 bed. It's you know it's quite aggressive. It it is very aggressive. A solid idea if kids ever do need to defend themselves, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's just hopefully they didn't reenact this. I think yeah, Ver- Verity Lambert has said that um, in retrospect that it was probably a mistake um, to have this in, but it does give us a nice visual and it does add to the kind of horror sort of vibes. Um, mm-hmm. And it fe- again, it scissors. It feels more visceral than. Um, then something, you know, sci-fi or whatever. A little time later, the Doctor, still with a bandage round his head, Ian and Barbara sit together in the living space off the console room. The two teachers seem to have regained their memories, but none of them know what is going on. The Doctor believes that the ship must have landed somewhere whilst they were unconscious. Barbara posits a frightening suggestion. As the doors were open, What if something got into the TARDIS whilst they all slept? I bet it was ghosts. Yeah? 
So okay, yeah. so go- so ghosts or slug alien. Ghosts or the slug alien, something that's in their brain. Yep, yep. Or just like even be like an escaped criminal or something. Honestly, yeah. I did briefly consider that too. Yeah. Uh, and then they did do something like that um when Matt Smith was introduced. Yeah. Right? Cuz they had the inmate. Prison Zero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a frightening idea that there's, there's, you know, the idea that there's something, something's got into the TARDIS and it's mm-hmm. potentially hiding. Right, because yeah. you don't know what all the rooms are there. You don't know yeah. how many rooms are in yeah. there. It could just, there could be things just living in the TARDIS that they don't know about because they don't go to those rooms anymore. Yeah, well, that was the thing in, in the episode Journey to the Center of the TARDIS that, that was sort of felt like they were teasing that there are dangerous things in the TARDIS that the Doctor keeps there. Um, in some of the extended media and like the I know in the Doctor Who magazine comics, um, there's a TARDIS zoo and like TARDIS Arboretum and things like no, that. No, there's not. Yeah. What? I mean, well, there is a TARDIS pool. So yeah. well, it exactly. doesn't surprise me. So it's entirely possible that the TARDIS, yeah, and there's a TARDIS jungle, I think, as well. And it's entirely possible that the Doctor keeps things in the TARDIS. Um, but also, I again, I this episode is is full of great ideas that for other episodes, I think, because the idea of someone's got into the TARDIS so the tar- and the power's going out so the TARDIS crew all had to take torches and search the TARDIS mm-hmm. for someone is also a really good idea for an episode, mm-hmm. I think. A bit more budget than this episode has, potentially. Um, well, they have more of a budget now. They do. They got that sweet Disney money. Yeah. 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 The men dismiss the idea and the Doctor asks for Ian's help checking the fault locator, the wall of computers that lines the back of the console room. I don't know if we mentioned this in the previous episode. At this point, the TARDIS has... There's a TARDIS console, then there's a whole wall of computers at the back of the TARDIS, mm-hmm. um, which is what computers used to look like back in the olden days, before they were, like, smaller than... They could fit in your pocket. Exactly. Unnoticed by everyone, Susan has risen from her bed and is listening. When the others move to the console room, she darts over to snatch the long scissors from where Ian placed them on the side table. She's back in bed by the time Barbara comes round the partition to check on her and seems to just be waking. Okay, so the image of of Susan on the bed yeah. really confused me for a hot second <laughs> because she had something on her head. And so I thought she was dressed like one of the cat nurses. I was like, whoa, that's a change. Um, and then I was like, no, they don't have those yet. And so I was like, maybe she's just dressed like a, a pilgrim. Um, and that was also confusing. <laughs> so she's also changed into a long black nighty. Was it black at that point? Um, I think so. Yeah. Or, she, okay. or maybe it isn't at this point. I no, think the black one comes later. No, I think she's changed into it at this point, and then Barbara changes into a matching one uh, later. Okay, okay. Um, I have a you you know this already. I have a whole thing about the the black nighties because <laughs> it implies that they're from the TARDIS because Barbara yeah. definitely didn't bring them. No. So they have matching ones, but then Ian is seen in pajamas as well, but completely separate, like a dress- silk nice. dressing gown. So what's going on? Is like, did they? Um, did... Obviously, Ian and the doctor are sharing clothes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It just, re- I just, I sat and I think I thought about it for too long about what was going on with the TARDIS because it took they again at the end of this episode, they say there's an extensive wardrobe in the TARDIS mm-hmm. and they all wear different clothes. So obviously... They could have their pick of of nightwear and both... And Barbara just borrows whatever Susan has. Which they look like big black t-shirts that they're wearing. These they, do, of, they do, yeah. they do. Uh, I mean, they don't look uncomfortable, but no. it also doesn't look like the most comfortable pair of pajamas I'd want to wear. But also imagine sleeping in these big black t-shirts on those S-curved beds where you can't move at like. The sleeping arrangements in the That's TARDIS. very, that almost gives like gynecology appointments. <laughs> the bed, actually now the beds as well. Maybe it's, yeah, he's, I mean, that's a different kind of doctor. That um, is. All right. Anyway, I thought she was a pilgrim. Yeah. Um, And then realized that she just had a towel on her head. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Well, all right. Barbara asks if Susan can remember her which Susan seemingly does. Then Barbara asks calmly if Susan will hand over the scissors, at which point the girl turns aggressive, but again is stopped by a pain at the base of her skull, allowing the weapon to be wrestled from her. Susan overheard them talking about something getting into the ship. 
Even though she suggested it, Barbara seems less certain about the idea. It's just the shadows and the silence. How would anything get in? Where would it hide? To which Susan replies, Inside one of us. I called it. Yeah, it's like, it's unnerving, isn't it? It really is, especially because she's the youngest and she's the one that's been like trying to stab people with scissors and like she has a massive pain in the back of her neck. She really over oversells this pain in the back of her neck. It like debilitates her. She does like a big kind of like roll onto the floor at some point clutching at. Yeah. Like how do you not think that she's possessed? Yeah. But also that's the thing in in like poltergeist sort of stories is that it's always the young child that's targeted. In the console room, the doctor tries to operate the TARDIS scanner to see outside. The scanner shows a series of images in sequence. First, a picturesque English countryside, at which moment the exterior doors were open on their own. Next is an image from the planet Quinnis in the fourth universe, where, on a previous misadventure, the doctor and Susan almost lost the TARDIS. The doctor explains that the TARDIS has a series of memory banks that record their journeys. With this image, the TARDIS doors were closed. Next is a rapid series of images, showing a planet but zooming further and further out past a galaxy, then a universe before the screen goes white. The Doctor jumps to a conclusion. Ian and Barbara have sabotaged the TARDIS controls whilst the Doctor and Susan were unconscious. Oh my god, good lord if i could if you could see me rolling my eyes you can see me rolling i can my see you eyes. rolling your eyes but if everyone else could see it so annoyed yeah the, i mean the doctor is peak sort of grumpy grouch like in, in this episode he's the most unreasonable sort of he re- he is so hangry in this episode like yeah I, I just can't i can't even with him in this episode to be honest as well they had a moment's rest you know, when they, after the caveman serial where they, you know, when whilst the, the radiation meter was going. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of been non-stop adventures since they got into the TARDIS. And also... Okay, but whose fault is that, well, no, I'm, ju- I'm just saying that they're all, you know, considering <laughs> also that when they got into the TARDIS, originally it was at the end of a school day. So they're, they're, they're knackered, I reckon, at this point. Yeah. They need some downtime. Okay, but the doctor and Susan have been doing this. Like, they should be more used to it. I could see Ian and Barbara being grumpy yeah. at him, but, like, the doctor's just a grump. He's just mean. Hey, I'm not trying to excuse his behavior. I'm just saying that I think that maybe they all need to have a bit of cake and a snooze, you know? Yeah, that sounds nice. Can yeah, I just get cake and a, a snooze? A sandwich and a nap, you know? I think it would just solve all the problems. That does solve all of the problems. Exactly. All of the time. Yeah. I also think that the, I feel like the TARDIS living quarters leave a lot to be desired. I feel like, yeah. obviously, I don't know, I feel like we do see Su- a, su- a bedroom for Susan at some point. I might be making that up. Maybe it's Vicky. Um, but it feels like the, the, these quarters are very much come standard with the TARDIS. And like this TARDIS food machine very much feels like designed for like if the TARDIS is being used for short trips. It's not designed mm-hmm. to be long term. It's not homely. Right. Yeah. There's nothing on the walls that yeah. indicate that they have decorated. And... Yeah. Well, there's all the doctor's sort of gubbins that he's collected. But yeah, I think I'd go crazy if I was just eating like pills from a machine to be honest. Yeah, like it's supposed to, t- like this Willy Wonka machine. Yeah. It's supposed to taste like food, but really, like, it doesn't. Yeah. No. I'd be sad. I'd miss that. Yeah. Barbara has had enough. She rounds on the doctor for his ingratitude, counting the number of times they saved his life on Scarrow and in the Cave of Skulls. She points out that it was he who kidnapped them and he who tricked them into the Dalek city. I 100% agree with Barbara. Yeah, she, she snaps she at this point off. and goes off at the doctor. And I, yeah, I support it. 100% in the right, 100% correct. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the doctor is like, uh, okay, yeah, whatever. He's, he's put in his place um, at this <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, but he doesn't like it, and no. he just kind of ignores it and continues on his yeah. merry way. The doctor is perturbed. The moment doesn't last long as something else is happening. The Doctor's old cathedral clock on its stand is starting to melt. The same is happening to all the other clocks and wristwatches in the room. That's what was happening? Yeah, so 
this is definitely more of a production thing um i think but it, it's it doesn't come across particularly well but the idea is that i think it's it, it, in the script it's meant to be inspired by salvador dali all the clocks in the room start mm. melting this idea of time starts melting and going wrong um which is a great idea but the way it's visualized is they just put some like tinfoil around the clock and yeah yeah but i mean this this is the filler episode that didn't have a budget exactly so. yeah i think as well as well with with a lot of these old the, some of the old scripts and sort of the more baggy scripts you've got to kind of see through the see, what is the story that's being presented mm-hmm. i think you can't blame us for this doctor ian says but turns to find the old man is gone, only for him to reappear a second later from the living quarters with a tray of drinks. A peace offering. A little nightcap to help us sleep. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah, he's just had a dressing <laughs> down and, and then suddenly he's all smiles and he's right? had a drink. That's so suspicious. Yeah. Still upset, Barbara leaves to go to bed. Susan follows. Ian asks the doctor to apologise to Barbara, but he is too caught up in his own thoughts. Once the others are all asleep, the doctor creeps unseen through the TARDIS. He arrives at the console and is about to operate the controls when a pair of hands appear, wrapping round his throat. <gasps> oh no. End of part one. Yeah. So something did get into the TARDIS. Some, well, something or well, someone, someone with hands has attacked the doctor. <laughs> a pair of hands have gotten into the TARDIS. It's a classic, like, he turns and he's like, you know, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't do this, but he should be like, you, what are you doing here? You know, that kind of, like, mousetrap or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sort of, yeah. Mm-hmm. That ending really did, like, the cliffhanger made me want to keep watching. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have the time to do it, like, the same day, but it definitely, I liked that cliffhanger. Yeah. And it also, it does fit with the kind of vibe of these episodes of being Mm -hmm. like, you know, quite a sort of, you know, classic horror slash sort of murder mystery sort of, you know, locked room mystery sort of Mm -hmm. vibe. And like the, you know, when everyone's gone to bed, the killer reveals himself sort of ending. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. What did you think of this, this first part? I mean, I I liked it. Um, the doctor was really annoying. I yes. I did not like his vibe. I don't like the way that he has treated Barbara. Yeah, and I know part of it might just be like the time in which it was created. Uh, but Barbara is smart. And she is being dismissed way too much. And, like, Susan was also being dismissed in, like, the Dalek serial. And it's like, guys, they are part of the team. Stop trying to just treat them like they're helpless women. Yeah. it's There's an interesting debate in that. So when um, Twice Upon a Time, you know, the Stephen Moffat's episode Mm -hmm. came out with... Um, David Bradley playing the first Doctor. He has some of the, he has the Doctor, you know, make those sort of slightly sexist jokes, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people were very cross because why, why is the Doctor making these jokes? But it's like, well, the joke is that he is that is what the Doctor was a little bit. He was, you know, from the sixties, and that's what he's making jokes like men in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what the, the answer is, just to ignore it and pretend that it didn't happen. But it. I, it, yeah both 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 versions feel wrong to me it feels wrong to include it and it also feels wrong to ignore it so i don't know what the answer is right uh he does i mean he does get slightly better though right yeah and also the, the point of this episode as well is to take them as a dysfunctional unit and you know build some of the character relationships so he you know he slight spoilers but you know you're listening to it right now as so you're gonna hear that he you know him, him and barbara do sort of patch up a little bit towards the end of the story so it i feel like it might be slightly intentional at least in this story to have him keep ignoring barbara and then barbara saves the day i think for the probably the millionth time she's right she consistently is saving the day yeah like i know ian was meant to be the heroic one in the group but he really is not doing a whole lot no ian has his moments but um, he he can sometimes also be incredibly useless. Yes. The, Ian has major Fred Jones from from the oh, Scooby Doo. Yes, he sort is one hundred percent Fred. Yeah, and and the Doctor is just completely 
the you know the mm-hmm. hero of his own story doing something else and barbara's just mm-hmm. there in the middle going we're gonna get murdered by you know forest people or yeah right she's the one actually solving the problems yeah. yeah everyone else is in their own story yeah okay so on to the second part of this story all right um uh, titled the brink of disaster um as we've really mm-hmm. it's yeah it's you could have just called it the edge of destruction part two. They I suppose, just but, found the yeah. the synonyms for yeah. edge of destruction, and they're like these yeah. these work. Just swapped them out. Yeah, t- teetering on destruction. Um, <laughs> episode two: the brink of disaster. I said that in a really southern disaster. Disaster. I'm from the north. I should I should say disaster. This means nothing you to you. Saying you said it southern, I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> the edge of destruction. No. <laughs> Don't start. Let's not, let's not go into that. Oh my god. Part two. The brink of disaster. The brink of disaster. Wide-eyed, the doctor gazes into the face of Ian. He looks wild and half awake. The doctor is able to pull free, and Ian falls to the TARDIS floor just as Barbara enters. She rushes over to him, asking for the doctor's help. But the old man seems vindicated. Evidence. This was a plot between the two of them to gain control of his ship. Again, Barbara tries to argue. Ian is affected like Susan was, but is cut off by a voice from the doorway. You've been behaving very strangely, both of you. Susan stands in the doorway of the console room, a trance-like look on her face. Don't forget the spooky music that came with the voice from yeah. the doorway. Yeah, so it cuts to, like, it, it's a proper kind of horror movie, Susan sort it of really standing is. in the doorway. Well, that's why I think, I think she didn't change into the black one until this moment, because I remember it being like, oh, dang, that's, like, really spooky. Well, I think she does, she, her hair is sort of, like, big and... That's possible. She, she looks quite startling at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's, also, it's probably worth, I, I don't think I've already mentioned, that this episode is directed... Both parts of this are directed by different directors. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Martin and Frank Cox, I think, are their names. So I think Richard Martin would go on to direct quite a few, but this is both of them. This is their debut story of directing um, because the original director fell through. And then they've sort of, again, it's all sort of, this story is very last minute. I, in some of the interviews and stuff I pointed out, a lot of people talked about the difference in their directing styles. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much I could tell. Um, I, I definitely tell. noted I liked some of like the use of cameras and stuff. It definitely felt like they were using depth and it felt like the entering and exiting of frame was was um, was really utilised in this sort mm-hmm. of small space. I, but I couldn't pinpoint the, the, the different styles of the two. I just got to say they're both great and then leave it at that. And yeah. yeah. Well, that's how I feel when there's like books with two authors like yeah. part of me tries to piece like piece apart which ones wrote which but also i don't know these authors i yeah. don't know what they do and so like it all just it all, it sounds good why worry about it exactly yeah barbara begs with susan pleading with her to see that they aren't the ones responsible for a moment it looks like it might be working Looking into Barbara's face, the fog seems to clear for Susan. But despite this, the Doctor is still adamant the two humans are responsible. Ian sits up suddenly with a cry of, Don't touch it, Doctor! Before collapsing again. Susan is convinced. In the war between her grandfather and her two teachers, sense has returned and she takes their side. They couldn't be responsible for all that's happening in the TARDIS. But the Doctor is decided. They have sabotaged his ship and are trying to turn his own granddaughter against him. The two teachers must be thrown off the ship. Okay, the doctor being so adamant about them being in cahoots, though, is really suspicious. I think he has a brainworm. He does protest too much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Susan cries, they don't know where they are. There might be no air. It might be too hot or impossible to exist. Or it could be Earth is the Doctor's only response. Ian, coming round, asks in a daze what is happening. You are getting off the ship, Chesterton! Ian, still confused, thinks this is a good idea. He could get some fresh air. Susan is even more furious with her grandfather, taking advantage of them. 
when a loud klaxon begins to sound. It stops as suddenly as it started, but the doctor knows what it means. The fort locator! He explains, rushing to the bank of computers along the back wall. Again, Ian, half asleep, calls out, Don't touch it, Doctor. Something is very, very wrong. The fault locator is telling them there is a problem with all the ship's systems. Ian grabs onto Barbara tightly, mumbling, The controls are alive. At once, the Doctor realises the mistake he's made. The ship is on the point of disintegration. The teachers are not to blame. All four of them are. They have been distracted, suspecting one another, whilst outside there is a strong force at work affecting the ship. Which is way less interesting than a murderer being on board. Yes. Or in their brains. Yes. So it's uh, there is a strong mag- magnetic force outside the TARDIS that is now pulling, draining the ship of energy, and that's what's mm-hmm. causing everything to start malfunctioning. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. But also, I kind of... I, I'm on the side that I kind of like the idea of, you know, this is why I think it, there's some inspiration for Midnight here, is that there there is no villain, there's nothing nothing yeah. causing, they're, they're just all suspecting each other. It's sort of paranoia that is the enemy. They aren't all suspecting each no. other. Well, the doctor is suspecting all of them. They're all suspecting, but perhaps some of them are suspecting more than others. The doctor is, yeah is on a one track he, yeah he, he very quickly is like oh oh so you weren't responsible very well then we were we, definitely we were all to blame we all the royal we yeah. all yeah were, come no, on doctor. doctor yeah susan has been monitoring the fault locator the lights are coming on now at much shorter intervals something dawns on barbara the images they'd seen the clocks melting a warning showing time being taken away from them. And now it's been given back, because it's running out. There is another crash, an explosion from the console. Then everything stops. Silence. The central column, the glass cylinder that rises and falls with the motion of the ship, is still. Very solemnly, the Doctor remarks. This is the end. Whilst the column rises and falls, it indicates the flow of power through the ship. Now that power has been released, he estimates they only have ten minutes left. The doctor seems defeated, not knowing what to do. If only I had a clue. I think perhaps we've been given nothing but clues. Barbara stands up and moves again to the old cathedral clock. Like the food machine, Ian realises. It registered as empty, but was full. He joins Barbara, and with a Holmesian-like energy, she begins to deduce out loud. The clock was the most important clue, making them aware of the time being taken away, only to be replaced with the light from the fault locator. The Doctor had said the ship had an inbuilt defence system. Perhaps originally the ship wasn't at fault. They were, and it was trying to warn them of the danger they were heading towards. It must be something powerful, the Doctor muses, like the power of a solar system. And suddenly, the console gives off a loud crash, as if in agreement. Barbara feels vindicated. As she should. Yeah, this is her sort of Miss Marple, you know, Poirot. She has Mm -hmm. the kind of, the big speech. The Doctor sets into action, assigning them all roles to watch parts of the ship. He takes Ian aside, however, and the excitement falls from his face. They only have five minutes left. He can see no hope, but doesn't want to take it away from the others. He asks Ian, however, if he will face the end with him. This is a nice moment. I mean, again, it's another example of the Doctor. He he does this in the Daleks of being like, let's not tell the women, but between you and me. But ignoring that for just a second, it's a nice Mm -hmm. character bonding moment between Ian and the Doctor, who have been at sort of loggerheads of who's the alpha male. But the Doctor's like, it's all gone. It's all gone horribly wrong. I think we're going to die. Um, I don't know what to do. But he doesn't say this. But it's almost like, mm-hmm. do you want to? Will you hold my hand? It puts them on neutral ground. Yeah. But also. But also the sexism. Yeah. Uh... Yeah. He can. He can be. He can have a heartfelt moment, but also be sexist, right? I don't know. He can because it's from the sixties. He can. Yes. I think. 
uh, this this moment nowadays would probably have some backlash to it if it was released yeah. in 2023. Well, yes, yeah, um, but maybe not. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's it, yeah. If we if we isolate the two things, um, it's nice that there's a as a bit of male bonding without mm-hmm. ego. The fact that it comes at the expense of uh, being a bit flippant about Barbara's plan, which turns out to be correct. Anyway, let's keep anyway, going. Anyway, let's not fall down this well again. No, because it gets harder get and harder to get later. out every time. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Ian agrees, and the doctor acts out his role in the ruse, turning on the scanner. Once again, it shows an image of idyllic England. The TARDIS doors were open and show the white void. The image changes to the alien landscape and the doors were shut. Barbara is adamant. The TARDIS shows them an image of somewhere safe and then opens the doors. It then closes them after showing somewhere dangerous. Next in the sequence, a planet, a planet in a solar system, getting further away until a blinding flash of destruction. At last, the Doctor believes her. It's showing their journey. The defence mechanism is trying to warn them of the disaster outside. He himself said it would take the force of an entire solar system to attract the power from the ship. They are heading towards the very beginning, the birth of a solar system. Outside, atoms are rushing together, fusing and coagulating. New little collections of matter are being created, a process that goes on until dust forms and swirls, becoming solid entities. A new birth of a sun and its planets. The question now is where are they? When they left the planet Scaro, where had the Doctor set the controls? He had tried to set them for Earth, a return journey using the fast return switch, a switch on the console close to the scanner, in the area safe to touch. The lights inside the TARDIS have been dimming since the power was released. The Doctor has to use a torch to locate the switch, discovering to his horror that the button has been pressed but becomes stuck and not released. The switch has been on the whole time, forcing them further and further back in time to the beginning of the galaxy. It's a very simple solution to this problem. However, I would like to poke a hole in the plot and poke away. It it doesn't it, it doesn't explain why Susan was being really homicidal with those scissors and why Ian was choking people. Yes. I think it's sort of alluded that the TARDIS has a sort of telepathic influence on them, but it's not explained well enough that I think... Yeah, that does not come through. Yeah. Um, but I mean, now that you say it, it makes sense because Susan does have like that psychic yeah. link or whatever they call it. Um, yeah. they call it? Tele- yeah, I don't know. I don't know. She has the... Um, she's got the shining. <laughs> she's got the shining. Um to be honest, this episode goes a long way in establishing sort of things we take for granted about the TARDIS in that mm-hmm. it's, in, you know, that it, that the TARDIS goes on beyond this sort of control room, that the TARDIS is sort of alive and sentient and can, you know, communicate certainly, you know, sort of can, is is a character in itself. It's not just a machine, it's a living thing. Um, mm-hmm. We take that for granted now, but yeah, it's set up here in this third serial. Um on a fun note, the, the the fast return switch on the console has written above it in felt tip pen, fast return switch, um, which I get, which I think we've already talked about is um, whoever wrote it. The idea is that it was Caroline Ford and William Hartnell labeled bits of the TARDIS console so they'd know in rehearsal what they were doing and be able to find bits. Mm-hmm. They thought that these would get removed before filming and... <laughs> The fact that when we went to see the the replica prop in Edinburgh, it had these label maker bits on it still, which definitely weren't supposed to, like in English, they definitely weren't supposed to be there. It's just a fun sort of... It, yeah, it's, it's a fun thing, like a little Easter yeah. egg, just to see. It just Which one's the fast return switch? Is it the one with fast return switch written above it in, in felt tip? Yeah. In English. In human earth English. <laughs> yeah. With Ian's help, the Doctor prizes the switch back up. The moment he does, the lights on the console come back on, as do the lights behind the walls. Power has returned to the TARDIS. They are safe. Susan still seems confused about what happened. So the fault locator hadn't been able to tell them about the issue, because the switch was working perfectly. So the ship had to find other ways to warn them. 
The doctor approaches Barbara, finally admitting she was right all along. Her instinct, reading a story into the ship's displays, trumped his logic. They all owe their lives to Barbara. Yes, they yeah. do. And not for the first time. Nope. Despite the doctor's long sought after gratitude, Barbara seems quiet and takes herself into the other room. The doctor is ecstatic, explaining how he quite underestimated Barbara and is excited for them to all start with a clean slate. Ian chuckles to himself at the mad old man as the TARDIS lands once again. Sometime later, the Doctor finds Barbara sitting alone in their living quarters. He tells her they've landed on a planet that seems breathable, if a little cold outside. Barbara seems distant, and the Doctor asks if she's forgiven him for the terrible things he said and did while he suspected them. Barbara curtly asks why the Doctor cares about her feelings. He replies that as you learn about others, you learn about yourself, and that her determination to prove him wrong about her and Ian is what pushed her to solve the problem. Mm, Okay. All right. Yeah. I have uh, big feelings about this. Yes. I think that the doctor is doing a really bad apology. Like, he is not apologizing the way that he should be. And, And, like, him saying that her determination to prove him wrong is what helped her solve it is him taking credit for her being smart and i just i don't it's like saying oh i'm really sorry that you feel like i hurt your feelings it's like no you did hurt my feelings apologize for the action of doing it don't apologize for my feeling like this apologize for you doing it like it's just it doesn't Sit right. So, like, Barbara's reaction of just, like, quietly walking out and quietly, like, ignoring him is honestly more than he deserves. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also just, like, a very recognizable moment for women everywhere that have been underestimated and then treated like that. Like, I saw it in her face and was like, oh, yeah, this this needs to be talked about because it's shitty. Like, it is so awful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the the dialogue maybe is wrong, but I feel when I was watching it, again, this might be me not really like, yep, all sorted now then. She's fine. <laughs> I the, I read it as the, the the energy between them, like this this moment where they're both sat after the adventure and I yeah, it read like a kind of a kind of growing moment to me, but but also, like, if she isn't completely on his side after the apology, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Like, it does bridge some of it, but it's not, like, a completely forgiven thing because he was yeah. so mean. He was so yeah. mean. It doesn't solve everything, but it does. It it definitely feels like a moment for the doctor where he, he realizes that he was wrong. Um and you know that, that the line he says when he he says you know we learn about ourselves through the people him learning that he underestimated Barbara means that he learns something about himself in that he's a crotchety old fart. Um, yeah, it's yeah I I agree I think it feels like it's trying to tie it up at this point and you're That's not just convinced. my thoughts on yeah. it. Fair, I think I, <laughs> no, I do think you're right. I think yeah. Thank you. I just want everyone to get on. <laughs> I don't like it when mummy and daddy fight. I know. I don't either. But it does need to be talked about. Yeah. But the, the, but again, I think this is the crux of this episode. I think because up until this point, like I said, they've all been, you know, they've been at odds with each other. And they've been sort of, mm-hmm. ba- you know, bas- to be honest, Barbara and also and a little bit Ian have been dragging them through these adventures and, you know, getting them through, to be honest. And going forward... It definitely. I, th- I think it was definitely a note that we've had that now, and we want to, to. We want them to work as a unit, and you know, together, mm-hmm. and be more like a, you know, like a family. So this story, as well, mm-hmm. is sort of a transition from them going from them being a beckering group to respecting each other. I think a bit more. Um, yeah, I hope so. But yeah, Susan bursts in wearing a winter coat 
She is excited to explore outside. She and Ian have raided the TARDIS wardrobe, which the Doctor says is extensive, and there are some clothes left out for Barbara if she wants to join them. The Doctor tells his granddaughter they need to take care of Barbara, as she's very valuable to the team. This finally gets a smile from Barbara, and she stands to take the coat the Doctor offers. Again, that saying that line, it, it doesn't sound like it's not a good line, but the way William Hartnell delivers it, it is, is a very endearing thing yeah i think but me just saying that like he says well he's very valuable it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't give justice to actually hearing it it's a nice moment it's a nice she's valuable to the team she isn't isn't, he's saying he values her right Mm -hmm. okay yes good (laughs) you're gonna be second guessing everything after this you know I, i said this before i like that we when we meet the doctor for the first time he is not the he is not the doctor he is a mm-hmm. guy who's you know i mean obviously again adding into all this context of canon that doesn't exist yet but he's you know he's grown up on a planet of pompous you know scholars who you know live in cloisters and read dusty mm-hmm. books and you know he's grown up in a very austere society and it's him going out into the universe and realizing that people aren't going to put up with this sort of shit. Um, you know, we'll get to see William Hartnell's Doctor, you know, grow and soften. And I, 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 that's, I really love that. I love seeing this character that I know so well in the future sort of, you know, have the edges sanded mm-hmm. off them a bit. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to that. The old man offers her his arm and the school teacher takes it the two walking together into the console room. Ian has found himself a long cloak, which he twirls to show off. It's a really ugly coat. I don't like it. It's too big for him. It's a bit square on him. (laughs) The wardrobe is so extensive. Uh, Why did he pick that one? (laughs) This is the first moment of the Doctor name-dropping as well, um, implying that he's met Gilbert Sullivan, um, which could be Mm -hmm. a prior adventure. I've mentioned, haven't I, that I wanted um, the, the... Big finish to do the Doctor traveling with the Gilbert Sullivan and his companions. Um, it could also mm-hmm. just be a joke that the Doctor's making that it looks like something Gilbert and Sullivan. Might. I don't know. I if, mean, if, it could be, but maybe you should work at Big Finish. I mean, I mean, that's you. you you're, that you're saying that. I'm not saying that at all. You know. Anyway, um, the doors are open onto the snowy landscape, and Susan rushes back inside, throwing a handful of snow at Barbara before dashing away. Her teacher gives chase. The Doctor compliments Eon on the coat, the two of them now linking arms to exit. Outside, Susan and Barbara kneel over a footprint they found in the snow. A large footprint. Large enough for a giant. How do you feel? I, this this episode gets a lot of slack. I like this sort of little... We get a little ending where having a bit of fun in the snow just at the end and... Mm-hmm. it's either Russell T or Stephen Moffat said this thing of that you can't if the TARDIS the TARDIS is too exciting if you but why would you ever want to leave it but I think occasionally I like to have these episodes where we get to see a little bit more again it's because it's character focused this 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 two-parter is is again getting the characters from A to B in their relationship and I like that we mm-hmm. just get to see a moment at the end where they get like a a breath of fresh air before the next shenanigans kick off yeah, I mean, I I would watch a season of the TARDIS, of just exploring the TARDIS. That sounds fun. On my list of episodes that I'd want to pitch is like a kind of, is, a, is another running around inside the TARDIS episode. Because I don't think we've ever had one which really, I don't know, really feels like it's done the TARDIS justice. I've Again, I've said this, I think, before to you in just conversations that I think the, the best episode that does it is Castrovalva which is, or part one of Castrovalva, which is Peter Davison's just regenerated. So this is flash forward. Mm-hmm. So the fifth Doctor's just regenerated and he wanders off into the TARDIS and gets lost. And the companions are trying to fire the TARDIS because he's gone off somewhere. And he's just <laughs> wandering about the inside of the TARDIS. And it's in that era as well, we get to see like some of the bedrooms. We see, you know, we, we get to see the TARDIS crew hang out in each other's bedrooms and stuff. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know, it just feels like the TARDIS is more lived in. I think one of the issues I had with the with the TARDIS set we've just had at time of recording, the the kind of crystal one, 
is that there's no chairs. Mm-hmm. There's no they sit on the steps. Yeah. There's no sort of furnishings. Which what I love about the TARDIS, this first design, which um, I can't remember the the designer's name. It's not so Ray Ray Cusick is the is the designer for the series, but originally they had a different designer design the TARDIS. Um, I think he just did the walls on the console potentially the three the, the three hexagonal walls. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think he was that invested in it. Um, but it's, it's it's this white gleaming futuristic spaceship, but that it's populated with random junk and stuff that the doctors collected, and it just yeah, it's just stuff he picks up and is like, no one's gonna miss this. I think that tells you a lot about his character. You know that it's full of this ornate junk. Yeah. So I think that's what I think that's part of the TARDIS that that should be kept, and we get that you know we get that in Peter Capaldi's TARDIS is that it gets it's full of bookshelves and tat and things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I like that, and that yeah. is that is something I do like about that TARDIS is it it does have a ton of yeah. books. In you it. get to see he has a desk. I like in uh, Matt Smith's first TARDIS when you, they put the dartboard up at one point, and he's got oh, it's got the levels as well, so he can be like down below Tink. It just feels lived in. I like the idea of them all, you know, this sort of the ship that they're living in. So I, I feel like that just went off on a, yeah. on, a, on a on its own sort of tangent. Hey, that's fine. I mean, filler episode for filler episode. So our ne- the next episode going to be a bit of a tricky one. We've got Marco Polo, which mm-hmm. is the amazing epic that doesn't exist anymore. It's the first lost episode that we're going to watch. Are you, how are you how are you feeling not having watched it yet? So I I'm excited for it. I'm also like a bit disappointed yeah. that we're not going to be able to watch it. Like it's it's just listening and like seeing stills if they have yeah. any. Um, but I mean, I am excited for it. It just kind of sucks that it's not actually available. We didn't do this in the last episode, so so we need to do the last episode and this episode. Is what what scout badges are we giving Ian? So we gave him. Um, the, his Firemaker badge for the first oh, yes, yes. serial. Okay. Um, I was thinking either um, rock climbing or splunking for the for the Daleks, or I don't know because he did some cave delts. He did do some pretty solid cave stuff, but I mean he also dropped someone. Yes, yeah, so maybe not not tying. Died. Although no, the knot wasn't the issue. The, the knot became an issue because it was tied to him. Something, or maybe camping, because they do some camping if be off screen. Let's give him a camping. Okay, so he had f- fire starting and then maybe camp building for the for the for the Daleks. Yeah. He doesn't do a lot in this story. It's definitely more. I I wondered about hostage negotiation for the for the scene with with um, Susan and the scissors. I know that's not an actual badge that the scouts get. I like the idea of the scouts being trained in hostage negotiation. But yeah, I'm giving. I think we're giving his hostage negotiation badge for this, for this episode. He does not get a fashion badge. No. No. Although the dressing gown gets taken away with that coat. I don't mind the coat. Okay, (laughs) it's it's. Is it his best look? No. No. Is it a bold choice? Yes. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. I'm trying to think of, I should have come in prepared with a good uh, Big Finish recommendation for this one um, as well. Um, I'm trying to think of episodes that are just set within the TARDIS of Big Finish, which uh, there aren't many because, again, if you have an unlimited budget in the world of sound, why would you set it just uh, within... Uh, oh, okay, Zagreus. Did I, have I pitched Zagreus? I don't know. You would know that more than I would. Um, Zagreus is the 40th anniversary special that Big Finish did, and it's with the and basically it's, it's with the Eighth Doctor being sort of uh, taken over by this entity called Zagreus, and, it, and the the ongoing Eighth Doctor stories at the time it sort of led up to this, and it does take place within the TARDIS uh, predominantly, but the TARDIS is also being affected by this sort of entity. Um, and th- so the TARDIS takes on the form, it sort of tra- it transforms and changes and um, takes on like an Alice in Wonderland sort of energy. And, you know, so the environment changes and then it appears in the form of the Brigadier. It's, it's, it's really hard to explain this story, but it is fantastic. So okay. my big finish recommendation for this episode is Zagreus. Next time on You Know Who. 
I literally said, oh shit, when she said that. <laughs> um, that is too, that's too much of an age gap. That's a hard, hard pass from me. Thanks for listening to You Know Who. If you want to see more from me and Jonah, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at You Know Who Podcast. And if you want to support the podcast, tell your friends and family. Give us a rating if your podcast app does that. And if you want to hear your name at the end of each episode, become our producer at patreon.com backslash you know who podcast. Speaking of which, special thanks to our producer, Kathy Blasher. Zagreus sits inside your head. Zagreus sleeps among the dead. Zagreus sees you in your bed and eats you when you're sleeping.